Section 3 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine H. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 3. Cleopatra, Part 2. The Alexandrian War now succeeded. Various fortune attended the movements and operations of the rival parties. At one time, the little Roman army seemed doomed to be overwhelmed by the superior force of the Egyptians. But the good genius of Caesar did not desert him. He manfully supported the cause of Cleopatra, which he had espoused, and by repeated exposures of his own person to danger and peril for her sake awakened in her bosom still more powerful feelings of affection and regard. At length, being seconded by the Roman troops from Syria and Cilicia, Caesar prosecuted the war with his accustomed vigor, and it finally ended in the complete overthrow and death of Ptolemy and the general recognition of the authority of Cleopatra. During the series of contests that took place in the vicinity of Alexandria, a large portion of the city was destroyed by fire, including its chiefest ornament, the noble library founded by the Ptolemies. At one time all seemed lost, but through the gathering gloom the star of Caesar shone with a luster as of old. Midst the ashes and ruins of the capital, his banners floated proudly in triumph or in defiance. From street to street, the enemy were driven by his victorious arms until the beleaguered city was relieved. Indifferent to peril, he shared every risk, and each day the heart of Cleopatra warmed toward him as she beheld him fearlessly encountering danger for her sake. Before, she had but loved him. Now, gratitude turned her love into devotion. The war being ended, Cleopatra was proclaimed anew the Queen of Egypt, and in order to gratify the disaffected partisans of Ptolemy, and to allay the prejudices of the people, Caesar decreed that she should marry her younger brother, and that he should be associated with her in the government. This marriage, however, was one of mere form, as the younger Ptolemy was then but eleven years of age, and Cleopatra continued to share the counsels and the bed of Caesar. Having thus put down all opposition and restored peace and tranquillity to the kingdom, Caesar and Cleopatra made a royal progress through the valley of the Nile, accompanied by his Roman guards, by a large retinue of friends, and by troops of servants and attendants. Slowly and leisurely they ascended the great river, whose banks were yellow with the ripening harvest, in barges with poops of burnished gold, the oars inlaid with silver, keeping time with the measured tones of sweetest music, and the carved prows cleaving the waters softly, like mermaids in their merry sports. Reclining beneath silken awnings spangled with stars and flowers, upon carpets that yielded to the slightest pressure, and in whose woof the velvet foliage of the amaranth was blended with eastern roses and the azure flowers of the sacred lotus, the Egyptian queen and her noble lover passed the day in slumber, lulled by the mellow strains of barbiton and pipe, and fanned by the scented gales of Araby the Blessed. 
At the fall of even, the tents were pitched upon the shore, and summoned, as it were, by magic, long files of slaves came forth, bearing the vessels of gold and silver for the feast. The board was spread with fish and sesamum, with soup of alika, with olives, cakes, and sweetmeats, and the luscious fruits of Yemen. Wines made from the palm and grape, cooled in the vases of Koptos, or sparkled in the golden craters wrought by Argive artists with exquisite skill, and lamps of perfumed oil and censers filled with burning incense scattered their rich odors through the groves of date-palms and acacias. The night was spent in merriment and feasting, and when the morrow came it but renewed the scenes of yesterday. In revelry like this, in love's soft dalliance, the winged hours flew swiftly by. Though his presence was no longer needed, Caesar still lingered at the Alexandrian court. Cleopatra became the mother of a son, named, after his father, Caesarian. Thus there was another tie between them, and it was difficult to separate. At last the revolt of Pharnassus obliged him to break loose from the sweet thraldom which had detained him, and hastening forthwith to Syria, he defeated the rebel prince and drove him out of the kingdom of Pontus. Meanwhile, his enemies at home, not without cause, had brought discredit on his name, and even his warmest and most faithful friends did not withhold their censures, for that he had not resisted the blandishments of the Egyptian Circe. Leaving a sufficient number of his troops with Cleopatra to enable her to suppress any outbreak that might occur, he now returned to Rome, taking with him her sister, the young Arsinoe, who had fallen into his hands as a prisoner on the defeat of Ptolemy, to grace the triumph decreed him by the Roman Senate. From this time, and until the death of Caesar, the reign of Cleopatra was not disturbed by foreign war or internal commotions. Her power was firmly established, and no one disputed her authority. During the minority of her brother, she administered the government alone, with a skill and ability not unworthy of the race from which she sprung. Though too much devoted to pleasure and gaiety, she was not without ambition. She conciliated the favor of her subjects by her attention to their interests, by the encouragement of commerce and the arts, and by the restoration of the capital to its former splendor. Under the powerful protection of the first man in Rome, none dared to molest her. Kings and princes courted her alliance, and stood in awe of her name. It was, perhaps, a frail tenure, the will of Caesar, by which she held the scepter, but it was also the sole alternative of absolute submission to the Roman rule. Egypt was already doomed. Nature had made her the granary of the world, and she was far too valuable a prize to be either overlooked or forgotten. It had been the original intention of Caesar to bring Cleopatra to Rome, and there to marry her. For that purpose he had solicited a friend to propose a law to the people, allowing a Roman citizen to marry as many wives as he thought fit. His friend acceded to the request, but nothing had been done when he returned to Rome. Opposition to his project being anticipated, no further steps were taken, though he continued as deeply enamored with her as ever, 
and many tender messages were wont to pass between them. Had he lived and attained the imperial power, it is not improbable that she would have become his wife, and certainly in one respect, as the two most conspicuous personages in the world, they would have been fitly mated. She the bride of Caesar, Caesar emperor of Rome. What might have been the fate of both? What the destiny of the Niobe of nations? Events now followed each other in rapid succession. Cleopatra did not soon forget her love for Caesar. She visited him at Rome, became an inmate of his palace, and usurped the place which his wife should have occupied. But her hopes of an alliance with him, in which he probably shared, were suddenly frustrated by his assassination. The Roman people did not regard her with favor, and she returned forthwith to Egypt. Disappointed in the darling object of her heart, she resolved to reign alone, and was not disposed to share her throne with a husband forced upon her acceptance. When her younger brother, therefore, having reached the age of fourteen years, claimed his share of the regal power, she removed him by poison, and was thenceforth sole mistress of the realm. Her court, like that of her father, was distinguished alike for its refinement and its voluptuousness. She was the patron both of learning and of love. The fame of her wit and beauty were noised abroad, and Alexandria became a favorite resort of travelers. To all she gave a cordial welcome, whether philosophers and men of letters, or gay gallants in quest of pleasure. It would seem that Cleopatra hesitated at first whether to ally herself with the triumvirate or with the party of Brutus and Cassius. Her sympathies were unquestionably with the friends of Caesar, but while it remained in doubt which was the stronger faction, the safety of her kingdom and herself appeared to require that she should not give offense to either. Her hesitation, however, was not of long continuance, foreseeing the ultimate triumph of the powerful party headed by Antony, Lepidus, and Octavius Caesar, she refused her aid to Cassius, which he had earnestly solicited, and shortly after sailed with a numerous fleet to join the forces of the triumvirate. In consequence of a violent storm, in which many of her ships were destroyed or disabled, she was obliged to return to Egypt, where she remained till the question was decided by the utter discomfiture and overthrow of the Republican faction in the Battle of Philippi. After the defeat of Brutus and Cassius, and the firm establishment in Greece of the authority of his colleagues and himself, Mark Antony crossed over into Asia to secure and strengthen their interests in that quarter of the world. The prestige of his name was all-powerful. His progress was one continued triumph, not such as best became a conqueror, but dishonored by the most shameful debauchery and excess. Kings bent before him in humble obeisance and laid their hoarded treasures at his feet. Queens, rejoicing in youth and beauty, sought his presence eagerly and yielded every favor that he asked. Never was the gross sensualism of his character more glaringly exhibited. The wealth of Croesus filled his coffers, but it was needed to furnish new pleasures for his jaded appetite. Syncophants and flatterers shared his gold, and partook with him in every vice and folly. Dancers and buffoons were his companions and attendants, 
the creatures of his bounty, and the ministers to his passions. Rumors of the sports and revelry, the rioting and feasting in which he delighted, went before him. Cities sent forth their entire population to greet his coming. His followers called him Bacchus, a name that pleased him, and men and boys disguised as pans and satyrs, and women dressed as bacchanals in loose Asiatic robes, with vine wreaths about their heads and fawn skins on their shoulders, ran before him, swinging their thyrsi crowned with acanthus leaves and the foliage and berries of the ivy, beating their drums and cymbals and shouting, Eo Bacche! Eo Bacche! This was Antony, brave but effeminate, talented and eloquent, but coarse by nature, generous in disposition, but often cruel and unforgiving, sometimes abandoned, as it seemed, to the very lowest vices, and then, breaking loose from his degradation, exhibiting his character radiant with its old light. This was the Antony who, history tells us, was ruined by the arts of Cleopatra, as if he were an unwilling victim, and she were wrong, judged by the standard of her time, in adopting the only means that could save her country from impending ruin. Antony had cast a longing eye on Egypt, and he wanted but a pretext, whether reasonable or unreasonable, to occupy it with his troops, abolish its government and laws, and seat a Roman governor on the throne of Cleopatra. He had been informed that the governor of Phoenicia, then an Egyptian province, had aided Cassius, and he now summoned her before him to answer for the conduct of her subordinate. His lieutenant, Delius, was charged with his commands to her to meet him at Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia. To disobey this summons was to incur the displeasure of Antony, with Lepidus and Octavius, joint ruler of the world, and to arm the whole power of Rome against her feeble kingdom. She determined, therefore, to comply, but that it might seem like condescension, rather than enforced submission, she did not hasten the preparations for her journey. From Delius she learned the weak points of Antony. She knew his character and felt assured that he would prove an easy conquest. He was fond of money, not so much for its own sake as for the pleasures and amusements it could purchase. So from her affluence she provided herself with the richest presents and an ample store of gold and silver. He was vain and relished display and pomp. So she caused a barge to be built whose magnificence had never yet been equaled and its accompaniments and her own habits and ornaments were suited to her dignity and wealth, and in keeping with the show and splendor with which she intended to dazzle the eyes of all beholders and to charm and captivate the Roman general. But more than all, he was the courteous Antony, whom ne'er the word of no woman heard speak. And so she brought herself and Cleopatra was not now the young and inexperienced girl who gave her love to Caesar. She was in her twenty-sixth year, and every charm was perfected, every grace was finished. With both mind and person fully developed, winning in her address, fascinating in conversation, possessing a vivacity in whose presence melancholy was changed to mirthfulness, and skilled in every art of wantonness and coquetry, she was peerless and irresistible. 
none knew it better than herself, none felt it more than Antony. Though she received many pressing letters from Antony and his friends, urging her to expedite her movements, she affected to treat them with disdain, and lingered long at every place she visited upon the way. No thought of haste appeared to animate her, but she traveled slowly, as if intent on pleasure, or delighting to provoke the impatience of those who waited for her arrival. At last her fleet was moored within the entrance of the Silver Sidness, and then, in the splendid galley brought across the sea, followed by a long line of smaller barges, she ascended the river to Tarsus. It was a glorious pageant. The richest carvings adorned her barge, which fairly blazed with gold and splendor. Its sails of brightest purple swelled gracefully with the soft south wind that strained its silken cordage. Its oars, both blade and handle, tipped and bound with silver, moved in harmony with the voluptuous music of the flute, the pipe, and cithern. Above it floated the mystic ensign of the Egyptian monarchs, and from the burning censers on its prow, clouds of odorous perfume were wafted to the shore. Upon its deck was raised a lofty canopy of cloth of gold, beneath which, on a cushioned couch, with ivory and tortoise-shell inlaid, reclined the dark-eyed queen of Egypt. She was robed like Venus, in a purple mantle, glittering with diamonds, and its border ornamented with threads of gold and silver intertwined. Roses and myrtles were wreathed about her brows. Her ears were pierced with rings of oricalcum. A necklace of precious stones encircled her swan-like throat. The golden cestus clasped her waist, and golden sandals encased her tiny feet. Beautiful boys, disguised as cupids, stood beside her and fanned her with their wings. Damsels, among the fairest at her court, whose outward beauty could not be surpassed, were habited as nereids and graces, in loose, transparent robes, and waited to do her bidding, or managed the helm and sails with great dexterity and skill. The tackling silk, the streamers waved with gold, the gentle winds were lodged in purple sails. Her nymphs, like nereids, round her couch were placed, where she, another sea-born Venus, lay. She lay and leaned her cheek upon her hand, and cast a look so languishingly sweet, as if, secure of all beholders' hearts, neglecting she could take them. Boys like cupids stood fanning with their painted wings the winds that played about her face. But if she smiled, a darting glory seemed to blaze abroad that man's desiring eyes were never wearied, but hung upon the object. To soft flutes the silver oars kept time, and while they played, the hearing gave new pleasures to the sight, and both to thought. Twas heaven or somewhat more, for she so charmed all hearts that gazing crowds stood panting on the shore and wanted breath to give their welcome voice. Dryden's All for Love, Act Three. The shore was lined with people who watched the barge laden with so much beauty, with straining eyes. As it moved along, the cry was raised that Venus had come to feast with Bacchus. From mouth to mouth it passed until it reached the marketplace in Tarsus. 
all hastened forth to witness her approach, all save Antony, who, deserted by suitors and attendants, remained alone on the tribunal where he was seated. Immediately upon her landing, he sent an officer to her with his greeting, coupled with the request that she should come and sup with him. "'Go, tell your master,' was her reply, "'that it is more fitting that he should come and sup with me.' This assumption of social superiority put an end at once to all the dignity which Antony proposed to assume. He accepted the invitation of Cleopatra, and thus, at the very outset, exhibited a deference toward her by which she did not fail to profit. For luxurious magnificence and costly and profuse extravagance, the entertainment provided by Cleopatra had never yet been equaled. Her tents and pavilions, hung with cloth of gold or silken tapestry from the looms of Tyre and Sidon, were pitched beside the sparkling water of the Sidnus, in a noble grove of spreading plane trees and stately laurels. Lamps of bronze and gold, suspended by gilt chains or supported by lofty candelabra, arranged in squares and circles, and raised or depressed at pleasure, shed their perfumed light around. Blazing censers filled with choicest spices loaded the air with fragrance. There were long rows of marble tables and silver tripods, covered with tureens and urns and vases of gold and silver, fashioned with elegance and taste. Large silver lances or chargers, splendidly embossed, contained the juicy meats, the fish, the hares, the pheasants. The bread and fruited cake were brought in silver baskets. Bronze dishes, with ornaments inlaid, were filled with eggs and rows of fishes, with oysters from the Hellespont, with fresh and pickled olives, with frumenty and radishes, with dried dates and raisins, mulberries newly gathered, and almonds and confections. Banqueting cups of most exquisite workmanship were wreathed with garlands and poured brimming full with the rich juice of Chios or the produce of the Egyptian soil, not the mild wines of Thebes and Coptos, but the light, fragrant Mariodicum and the oily and aromatic Teniodicum. Upon the ornamented seats and couches reclined the guests, with chaplets of violets and roses, myrtle, ivy, and philera bound about their temples. Their ears were charmed with the soft strains of music, and buffoons amused them with their droll tricks and pleasantries. Attending servants cooled them with fans of peacock feathers, while they listened to the mythological love-stories which the pantomimes related, or watched the dancing-girls, who, clad in the gossamer robes of Koa, with golden bangles upon their feet, and emerald brooches upon their arms and shoulders, moved with airy steps before them. The sparkling eyes and flashing ornaments, the white arms and the raven hair, the braids and bracelets, swan-like bosoms, the thin robes floating like light. High above them all was Cleopatra, and Antony reclining near her. Upon her head the diadem of Egypt, with the asp, the symbol of divinity upon it, flashed with rarest gems. Her tunic glittered with all the colors of the east, and was overspread with rich embroidery. A Babylonian shawl of finest tissue was thrown around her shoulders, 
and at her side there gleamed a Persian dagger whose hilt was pearls and diamonds. Cushions of crimson damask rose invitingly about her swelling limbs, her full lips parted but to utter honeyed words. The glow of satisfaction was on her cheek, and in her eye the light of triumph. Joy and merriment everywhere prevailed. The guests pledged each other in wine cups brimming full. Honey and spices were brought and mingled in the wine, and with the fragrant compound they drank the health of Cleopatra. The Roman guards without the tent were also served with sumptuous fare, and instead of Pascha, filled their ritons with the barley wine of Egypt. End of section 3